Amen. Amen. We're going to have a seat and good morning. Welcome. Uh, good to see you all this morning. Hope you're having a good Sunday morning. I want to invite you to get your Bibles out. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24. We're continuing through uh, the, the, the sermon series in 1 Samuel in search of a king. Uh, as you're turning to 1 Samuel 24, uh, let, me, let me just begin with this thought. I'm guessing all of you are familiar with this statement of taking matters into your own hands, right? And, and so we're, 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 it's the idea that, man, if something goes wrong, if something goes sideways, it's not going the way that I want it to, that I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. And maybe you've done that. Uh, maybe you've had that done to you. But whatever the case may be, uh, we've all been there. And really, First Samuel chapter 24 is a text, it's a portion of scripture that presents to David a perfect scenario for him to take matters into his own hands. And yet what David is going to identify here in 1 Samuel 24 is to do so, to take matters into his own hands, would be to attempt to take matters out of God's hands. And loved ones, that's what you got to understand. Really, anytime you and I are trying to take matters into our own hands, what we're really doing is we're attempting to take matters out of God's hands. Uh, and no surprise, that rarely, if ever, is going to go well for us. And so here's where God's Word is going to lead us this morning. It's this idea right here, that we patiently trust God's plan will happen in God's time and by God's way. Let me say that again, that we patiently trust God's plan will happen in God's time and by God's God's way. So we want to be a people. God help us that we would be a people who are patiently trusting God's sovereign orchestration in, on, and over the totality of our lives. So before we go any further, I think we do well to stop uh, and to, to commit our time to the Lord. Uh, typically, we pray for another pastor in the area this morning. I want to pray for Pastor Ryan Sickinger, our former family pastor, who this Sunday will be his first Sunday uh, in the pulpit in Kansas. So we're going to break from praying from someone locally and pray for him. Uh, and if you don't like that, you can pray for someone locally. All right? You're free to do that. Nothing's stopping you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious and good Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, God, we pray that your word would do your work in and amongst your people. God, we pray that as we sit under your word, uh, God, that we would understand these are the very words of God that are spoken to us, that they are binding and authoritative uh, over the totality of our lives. God, that they are true and trustworthy. And so we want to be submitted to them. And so God, we pray that your spirit would have the freedom to move and work amongst your people to accomplish your purposes now. And God, as always, as we want to typically pray for a pastor in the area, we're praying for one of our own. Uh, who, who now is not in the area. Uh, but God, we're praying for Pastor Ryan this morning, his first Sunday uh, as a lead pastor. God, would you uh, be with him? Would that be a rich uh, morning for that church? And God, we pray for gospel faithfulness for them, uh, not just for this morning, but for every Sunday for years to come, uh, that you would produce a gospel faithfulness in that church in the same way that, God, we're desirous and longing that you would produce and that you would accomplish a gospel faithfulness here at Faith Church. So God, we pray one of the ways that you do that now, <clears throat> that you'd open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to know and to understand all that you are and all that you're doing. And so we pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is Patiently Trusting God. 
patiently trusting God. And specifically, we are trusting God's plan is going to happen in God's time and in God's way. And so when you look at chapter 24, there's really three distinct sections, and that will frame how we move through the text this morning. But in verses 1 through 7, uh, you, you have uh, really <clears throat> the account of what's happening. Uh, and then in verses 8 through 15, David is going to respond uh, to Saul. And then in 16 through 22, it's Saul's response back to David. So, so we'll let each of these sections frame how we're looking at this idea of patiently trusting God. But first of all, let's begin with this idea right here in verses 1 through 4, or 1 through 7, I'm sorry. Uh, and it's an example of patiently trusting God. So look at your Bibles. Let me read the first four verses to us here. Uh, this is God's word to us. It says this, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, right? Remember, David was on the run. He was being pursued uh, by Saul. Saul was closing in, and then God sent the Philistines uh, to take Saul and his men away from David. So he returned from following the Philistines. He was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wilder, uh, wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, and where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Right? Duty calls. Saul's like, hey, i got to go take care of some business. Now check out what happens. Verse 4, now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. So they're all hanging out in the back of the cave, and in these mountains there's a series of caves there, uh, and in rolls who else but Saul himself, and the men of David said to him, you can almost see him kind of, dude, it's him, look, 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 here's the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I'll give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you, which by the way, God never said that, at least that's not revealed in the Bible, but what we see here beginning to unfold is an example of patiently trusting God. Now, I want you just for a moment, try to put yourself in their shoes, right? Just try to imagine what's going on for these different men and for David in that cave in that moment, right? In walks Saul and all the things that start going through their mind, right? At one level, they're probably excited thinking, man, this, this is it. This is the chance. God has delivered him into our hands. And yet in another sense, there's probably a sense of fear, because they know Saul is not alone. They know right below on the valley floor, as the text tells us, there's 3,000 men, uh, highly trained men, who are with him. Uh, and, and then if we just be honest, it's probably a little bit awkward, right? You're like, well, this kind of got weird, right? We're, we're kind of watching him do his business and all this stuff. But there's this overriding sense that God is delivering Saul into David's hand. And, and all of David's guys, they're all in on this. They're like, this is what God said, and this is what's going to happen. And yet I don't think that's at all what's going on here. And David ultimately is going to come to the same conclusion. And so what is going on here is actually I think this is a test from God. That what God is doing is God is testing our trust in his plan. Because here's what you have to understand. In this moment, David has an opportunity to take matters into his own hands, doesn't he? And he can skip past all of the hardships, all of the struggles, all of the difficulties. He can just bypass all of that and head right to the throne. I don't know if you, if you have or if you've seen like TiVo or DVRs or things of that nature, right? I remember when that first came out, I used to love that, right? Because you could skip past all the commercials. Uh, but being a Cardinals fan, sometimes I'd watch a Cardinals game and it'd be like, I'm just going to skip ahead to see if it gets close again or they're just going to get blown out and I can save myself a couple hours of misery, right? But you can just skip past all of the negative things and just get to the end, 
This is like DVR in real life for David. I can just skip ahead of all these things and just get to the good stuff at the end. And maybe you have found yourself tempted in your life that you want to bypass. I want to skip ahead. I, I, I want to just uh, blow past and avoid all the things that I don't want to deal with. Here's what I'd ask you to consider just in this moment. To skip ahead of all the hardship and the difficulty, what is it that you're actually skipping ahead of? Right? For, for some of us, we think about, man, I just want to skip ahead of the monotony of my life. Wait, you mean the monotony of your life that fosters discipline and commitment to the Lord? I'm not sure that you want to skip ahead of that. You, I want to forego having to patiently endure all of these hardships. Wait, wait, you mean the patient endurance that's going to foster and develop a trust in God? I want to skip ahead on, on, on sanctification. Like, I don't know why I still struggle with this. I don't know why I can't get this. I don't know why this isn't working out the way that I want it to. So, so what, you can arrive earlier but not have the maturity to handle the position that God puts you in? You got to understand, this is, this, all this stuff gets developed in the process and so David and his men are looking at this and like, we can skip past all of this. In fact, if they were 21st century Christians, they might go, David, this is God's open door. Right? We love that phrase, open door. Now, can we just be clear? Can we just be clear for a moment? You know what open door means? It means nothing. It just means that the door is open. But just because the door's open, that does not automatically mean this is God's will, this is God's plan, feel free to proceed. In fact, I would argue sometimes an open door is really just a test as to whether or not you're going to trust the Lord or you want to just take matters into your own hands. Because that's what's happening here. This is the clearest open door in all the Bible. And David is like, yeah, I'm not sure that this is what God is calling me to. Right? God will test our trust in his plan and here's our response, look at verses, the, the tail end of verse 4 through verse 7, is that we trust God's plan with patient faith. So all the men are like, David, this is it, this is, this is your day, this is your time. Look at the end of verse 4, then David arose and stealthily slung a spear through Saul's head. Nope, that's not what it says. What does it say? David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Like, that's got to be the lamest thing to do in that moment. But then look at his response. It says this. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he'd cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Right? He cuts it off, and then there's this deep conviction, this, this grief in his heart. And then he turns to his men, verse 6, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to, the, to my Lord, and this is important, the Lord's anointed. See, David understands who Saul is in God's economy, that God put him there to put out my hand against him, seeing he's the Lord's anointed. Verse 7, so David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul, completely unaware of what was going on, rose up and left the cave and went on his way. And I think what we see here is that we're to trust God's plan with patient faith. And so David sneaks up and he cuts the corner off the robe. And immediately there's this grief that, that, that strikes his heart. And you're like, what? okay, what is... 
what's going on here? Why, why, why this response? What's, what's, what's happening here? Because to cut off the corner of the road, that, that seems kind of inconsequential or maybe even innocuous to us. But loved ones, let's think about what has the robe symbolized? What is the robe represented up until this point? Because there's a few other times in 1 Samuel that we've seen the robe. Right? If you go back to chapter 15, you remember when Saul did not destroy the Amalekites? And Samuel says to Saul, uh, the, the kingdom's going to be, or, or you're going to lose the kingdom. And, and, and Saul reaches out and he tears Samuel's robe. And what does Samuel say to him? Just in the same way that the robe has been torn, your kingdom's going to be torn from your hands. Or in chapter 18, when Jonathan gives David his robe, it's, it's a symbol of, of kingship and authority. That's what it represents. And so for David, in his part, to cut off part of the robe is his attempt to grab the kingdom Right, to take matters into his own hands as opposed to be given the kingdom by God. And so David realizes as he's doing this that this is his attempt to run ahead of the Lord. This is his way of trying to take matters into his own hands and that's why his heart is struck in this moment. He is circumventing God's process. He is not trusting in the Lord. Now to be fair, had he acted, life got a lot easier very quickly. Right? No more poverty, no more living on the run, no more slander. It's just straight to the throne, nothing but rule and riches and triumph. And you're like, well, that seems pretty expedient. At what cost? At what cost? What's the cost if David takes the shortcut here? And that's a question maybe you need to wrestle with as well. What's the cost if I want to take the shortcut? What's the cost for me to take matters into my own hands because as we think about some of the cost of David's shortcut, the reality is this is true for all of us. This is the cost for all of us to take shortcuts. See, David would forfeit learning to trust in the Lord in all things, including his poverty and his slander and his difficulty. And the same would be true for you and I. David would forfeit experiencing God's sanctifying work in his life and thousands of both mundane and profound instances that would serve to shape his character for the rest of his life and the same would be true for you and I. David would forfeit witnessing God's provision and protection in the wilderness. And if you want to take a shortcut, the same is going to be true for you and I. He would forfeit growing his faith as God would prove himself again and again and again. And so would we if we want to take a shortcut. And you look at this and you're like, man, e even the throne isn't worth that price. It's too costly. It is too costly for us to take matters into our own hands. And so what David decides to do is he chooses to wait. He's going to live on the margins. He's going to continue in his sovereignly ordained difficulty until God chooses to entrust the throne to him. And loved ones, I wonder whether or not we're willing to wait. Right? That's a word probably all of us need to hear at some level this morning. Am I willing to wait? Am I willing to wait for whatever God chooses to entrust? Would I live on the margins until God is willing to entrust something different? Am I willing to live in the struggle until God chooses to entrust something different? God help us that we would patiently wait for God to give us what he has chosen to give to us. One other note on this here before we move on that I think is, is worthy of, of mentioning that I think David could have made a very compelling case justifying why killing Saul in that moment would have been okay. 
Right? Saul had just killed all the priests at Nob. He is a wicked man. It's like, well, David would have been better for the spiritual well-being of the nation. David had already been anointed. I mean, you go on and on and on. All the different ways that he could have justified, he could have rationalized why it's time for me to act. And the same is true for us, right? A lot of times when we think about things and items in our life, we want to take matters into our own hands. We can rationalize and justify why now's the time and why it's okay. Let me just bottom line it and say it this way. Sin in the process, sin in the process never justifies righteousness in the end. Did you hear that? Sin in the process will never ever justify a righteous end or a righteous result. God has no interest in a compromised process. No matter how profitable or effective or helpful the results are, God doesn't want anything to do with that. And so, he, right, here's our dilemma as 21st century Americans. We just tend to be task-oriented people. We're really focused on accomplishment and achievement and results. In fact, sometimes that's our preoccupation. What, what does this look like in the end? But what if God has a different focus than we have? Right, what, what, what if God's concern is different than our concern? What if God isn't so much interested in you and I accomplishing a task as much as he is in being sanctified in our character? What if God is far more concerned with who you become as a person than what you do as a person? Right? What if God is concerned more about us producing an endurance and abiding faith and a trust in him more than he is with that we do something or accomplish something? God is not calling you and I to effectiveness. God calls us to faithfulness. Did you hear that, church? God is not calling us to effectiveness. God calls us to faithfulness. You know why? Because God handles the effectiveness. That, 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 that's his realm. That's what he does. He is simply calling you and I to be faithful. And so church, can we, can we be faithful? By patiently trusting God's plan will happen in God's time and by God's way. And it might require some form of waiting in our lives. So let me just ask you a few questions here and then we'll move on. Will you patiently wait with trust in the Lord? Now, see, I, I don't know what your thing is. I don't know what that thing is in your life right now. I don't know what the Spirit's moving or prompting or what you're wrestling with or struggling through. I don't know what that thing is. So as, as you answer these questions, you know, and more importantly, the Spirit knows. Will you patiently wait with trust in the Lord? Secondly, are you willing to live on the margins? If that's where God chooses to place you, so as to grow you. Am I willing to live on the margins if that's the place where God's going to accomplish the development of the character, right? the development of this item in my life, whatever it is, to be sanctified? Will you allow your patience in God to exceed your preference for your life? What we see in David is an example of patiently trusting God. And so Saul walks out of this cave unscathed, and then David, after he's stepped out, probably at a safe distance, but obviously within uh, close enough to be able to hear him. Look at verse 8. Here's what we see secondly. Here's David's response. And really what we see in this is the blessing of patiently trusting God. There's an incredible blessing in, in, that, that, that is found in David and his response. So look at your Bibles. 
Here's David's response, or at least the first part of it. I'm going to read through verse 11. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave, and he called after Saul. Probably not how I would respond, guessing it's not how many of us would respond. My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your arm? Behold, this day's This day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I'll not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. Part of the blessing of patiently trusting God is is what we see here in verses 8 through 11, and it's this idea here that our testimony is confirmed in our integrity, that our witness, that the gospel presence in our life, that that's confirmed in our integrity, right? David rolls out of the cave, and he's bearing witness to Saul. I didn't kill you. I was given a golden opportunity, man, but I didn't do it. And his testimony speaks volumes because of his integrity, In fact, notice two different items that show up here with respect to this. First of all, in verse 8, we see the testimony of humility. I mean, David's response to Saul as he's walking out of the cave, is it's shocking and stunning. There's this incredible honor that he bestows on a guy that's repeatedly tried to kill him. I mean, David would have totally been within his rights to be like, Hey, jerk! I didn't kill you! Leave me alone! Can we just be done? But he's not even close to that, is there? Or, or is he? he? He comes out, my Lord, the King, and he bows down and he pays homage to him. Right? There's incredible humility in this. And you have to imagine in that moment, like, what's going on in Saul's mind? Right? You just rolled out of the cave and you're like, oh man, that could have gone really poorly for me. Uh, if David was like me, I'd be dead. Probably not, because Saul couldn't hit David um, if, if David was the broadside of a barn. But that's because of God's providence. But, but he, here's what's going on with David. David has entrusted his care to the Lord, and that has enabled him to respond with humility. Loved ones, the reason you and I can't respond in humility is because we haven't entrusted our care to the Lord. Right? This is what we need to be able to entrust our care to the Lord, and it frees us to respond in a similar form, in a similar fashion that David did in this moment. In fact, this is what the Apostle Paul talks about uh, in Romans chapter 12. So in Romans 12, really the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul is laying out the gospel and the fullness of the gospel. When you get to chapter 12, he's starting to talk about how the gospel uh, impacts and intersects with our life. And so he begins by saying this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And then he starts laying out all the ways that that, that Christians live and what their lives look like, and and various marks and evidences of, 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 of true faith. And so when you get down to verse 17, he says this. Repay no one evil for evil. Check. Uh, But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Check. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Check. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Check. 
Right? Like D- David is, is the very embodiment of Romans chapter 12. And he can speak with humility because he knows that vengeance doesn't belong to him. It actually belongs to the Lord. Loved ones, when we patiently trust God, we're given the opportunity to have a testimony of humility. And here's why. Because I don't have to defend myself and I don't have to prove myself. So I I can release all of that to the Lord, that God's going to vindicate me, that God's going to bring the truth to light, that that, that God's going to have his way in the midst of these things. David actually goes so far as to honor his oppressor. He is honoring his oppressor. Could we live like that? Could we think like that? Could we say what David is saying in this moment? We can if we are patiently trusting God the Lord in all things in our life. So there's a testimony of humility, but then secondly, look at verses 9 through 11, there's a testimony of tangible action, right? So so, so David talks about his motives in verse 9 and 10, but then you get to verse 11, and look at what he says. In fact, he says the word three times, see. He's like, I want you to see this. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. He's probably waving it around. And, and later in verse 11, he says later, you may know and see that there's no wrong or treason in my hands. David's inviting Saul to look at tangible evidence, something clear and obvious. And so as Saul looks down at the portion of his robe and sees the part that's cut off, He's confronted by the fact that David has not chosen to do what Saul has consistently tried to do, which is kill him. But the portion of the robe is tangible evidence of David's integrity. And so David finishes. He says this. He says, I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life. He's like, I had all kinds of reasons to do things, but I didn't do it. You're hunting my life, even though I'm innocent. Which, by the way, sounds eerily similar to what we read about Jesus in a variety of places. I think about what Peter says in Acts 2 at his sermon on Pentecost, that you delivered him right, unto lawless men. And so, so David's in good company in this regard uh, with respect to him and Christ. But David is inviting Saul to see, right? not just hypothetical, not just abstract, but a tangible manifestation, tangible evidence of his integrity in his testimony. And loved ones, we too should be inviting people to see what Jesus has done in us. And so I think it's worth asking as we think about our own lives, is there tangible evidence? Is it clear and obvious that my life matches or reflects my testimony? Right? Is my character a character that's above reproach? Do people who go to work with me or go to school with me or live in the neighborhood uh, with me, they know not only that I speak about Jesus with my lips, but I demonstrate it in my conduct. Is my home a home that's open to invite people in to be warm and welcoming and hospitable the same way that Jesus was warm and welcoming and hospitable? Does my public life match my private life? We go on and on and on. But the blessing of trusting God is just this. There's tangible action, tangible evidence. You could point to that and be like, this is who I am. There's tangible evidence that we're trusting the Lord. It can be seen by others for God's glory. God help us that this would be true of us. That we would be able to confidently invite people to come and see what God has done that our testimony is confirmed in our integrity. But notice also this, look at verses 12 through 15. 
that our respectful rebuke is rooted in God's justice. Here's the other side of, of the blessing of patiently trusting God is that we can respectfully rebuke. We can respectfully call out and, and, and interact with one another, but it's rooted in God's justice. Here's what David says. He says this to Saul, starting in verse 12, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. That our respectful rebuke is rooted in God's justice. And that's what David is appealing to here. Right? He's appealing to God's justice, to God's judgment, to, to the fact that God is going to deal uh, with sin and as we think about this, let me just, three things here in verses 12 through 15 that we want to highlight here real quick. First of all, look at verse 12. A part of our respectful rebuke is rooted in God's justice, and we see that we can trust God's judgment. We can trust God's judgment. That's what David is saying. He's saying, hey, let's, let's let God judge. Because what we know of God is he, he's going to be fair, and, and it's going to be impartial, uh, and it's going to uh, be a final verdict. In fact, David goes on to say that God's going to avenge me. But then look at what he says next. My hand shall not be against you. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, God can judge. God can avenge. I'm not going to try to take this into my own hands. I'm going to leave this in the Lord's hand. I'm going to let him deal with this as much as I might want to. But I'm going to trust God's judgment. And as you think about that, a couple of things. As we think about trusting God's judgment, first of all, make note of this. We trust God will judge sin. We trust that God will judge sin. Now, now if you're here this morning, uh, whether you profess to be a believer or not, let's just be really candid and honest. If you are practicing sin, if you're participating in sin, if you're pursuing sin, what you have to know is God is going to judge that. No one gets away with anything before God. And you are not the exception. God's not going to look past it. God's not going to miss it. You're not somehow more cunning than God and that you can hide it from him. No one gets away with anything before God. God is going to judge sin. Now, for the believer, here's the hope. The hope isn't that God won't judge sin. It's that the judgment of sin doesn't fall upon us. It has fallen upon Christ. That's the hope. Right? It's not that we're innocent. It's not that I can be good enough. It's that Jesus was good in my place. But if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you have never trusted in Christ. You've never given your life to him. Here's what you have to understand. You don't have the covering of Christ. You are standing unimpeded before God. And if nothing changes, you will suffer the wrath of God's judgment that is due to you. Now, hands down, the best response to that is not, oh, take it. No, that's a fool's errand. You're going to get demolished. A far better response is to entrust yourself to Christ, to trust in him and him alone to rescue you from your sin, to submit your life to him, to make him Lord and Savior over every facet of you and your life. But just understanding that God will judge sin. Secondly, we trust that God will vindicate. Right? It's not just that God is going to judge. 
but also that God is going to vindicate. That's what David's holding to here. God's going to avenge me. But again, you can go back to Romans 12. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, which actually comes out of the Old Testament. But loved ones, here's, here's how this has bearing for us. If you've been wronged, if you've been mistreated, if you've been slandered, if you've been maligned, if you've been abused, right, any of those things. And for some of you, that has not been righted yet. It hasn't been dealt with yet. Here's what you have to know. It will be. God will vindicate. God will avenge. It just might not be today, but it is going to happen. And so part of the the blessing of being able to patiently trust is knowing that God will do this. So here's where this is profound. You don't have to hold on to that. You can release that, and God in his perfect timing is going to avenge that. And so instead of being crippled, absolutely crippled with bitterness and malice and hatred in your heart, you can release that and let God avenge that when he chooses to do so. And he will. David's saying, I'm going to trust that God is going to judge fairly, that he is going to vindicate righteously, but I am not going to take matters into my own hands. God will do this in his way and at his time and as a part of his plan. And just for the record, it didn't happen right away for David either, right? It's years later. Um, And so for some of us, it's going to be years later, and we just need to leave it in the Lord's hands. But let me just ask you this. Where are the areas or the places of your life that you're not trusting God's judgment? Where are the areas or the places in your life you're not trusting God's judgment? Maybe there's an, uh, uh, you're persisting in sin. Maybe there's some apathy towards uh, righteousness. Uh, maybe, maybe you're more in line with the psalmist and you're lamenting, why do the wicked prosper? Like, why does it go good for them, but it's not going well for me? Just where are the areas or the places in your life you're not trusting God's judgment? Secondly, what are the places where you're not believing God's vindication? And these places we have to patiently trust that God is doing and accomplishing his plan in his time uh, and in his way. We trust God's judgment. Secondly, look at verse 13, that we confront sin. Right? Part of this rebuke, this reproof that David is offering is a confrontation of sin. And he actually uses a proverb to do it. He says, as the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. He's essentially saying, hey, uh, your actions reveal what's going on in your heart. It's similar to what Jesus says in, in Matthew 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He's like, what's inside of you, what's truly inside of you is going to show up on the outside of you. What's on my lips, what's on my hands is what's in my heart. And so where sin is present, we have to be willing to address it in one another. Where my life is incongruent, where your life is incongruent with your profession of faith, sin has to be addressed. That's what David's doing here. Now, if we're honest, most of us don't like this, right? We don't necessarily like telling someone else, hey, you're, you're, you're in the wrong or you're in sin. I don't know anyone that's like, I love when people confront sin in my life. It's like my favorite thing when you come and tell me how I'm failing. Like, I just don't know that person. And yet, this is what we all need. <laughs> Think of it like this. Um, th- th- this is probably a really modest and gentle example, but you, you ever been around somewhere where they get food stuck in their teeth or it's like on their face and they just keep eating and they're unaware, right? And, and, and it's kind of that awkward thing. Do I say something? Do I not? And they got like this piece of spinach flopping around in their teeth every time they talk. And you're like, oh, it's kind of weird. And the longer it goes, the more awkward it gets. 
And you're sitting there the whole time thinking what? They look ridiculous. Someone should tell them something. Loved ones, sin is the same way. That's the whole point. It's, it's the same thing, except it's far more destructive and far more insidious. And so when we think about confronting sin, I mean, we live in a society. It's like, oh, you can't even say that. Yes, you can, because the Bible tells us to. Let me just say it this way. The brother or the sister who will tell you the hard thing is the brother or the sister who loves you the most. The brother or the sister who is willing to tell you what you don't want to hear is the brother or the sister that loves you more than anyone else. And so if you think about uh, believers or, or brothers and sisters in your life, and you're like, well, I don't know if I can tell them that, then you need to question, what, who do you really love in that situation? Or if your brother or your sister comes to you, and they're saying something hard to you, and you want to push, and you want to fight back, ask yourself, why would they do this? I can guarantee you, it's not because they wanted to. It's out of love and concern and care for you. And no doubt in my life, the people that have loved me the most have been the people who have been willing to say the hardest things to me whether it's my wife or my kids, whether it's elders or pastors, whether it's my siblings, whoever it is, people that love me the most have always been the people who are willing to say the hardest thing to me. Are we willing to confront sin and have sin confronted in us? And then notice finally this in verse 15, where what part of what we see with this rebuke and it being rooted in God's justice is that we embrace God's deliverance, right? David is not trusting in his own ability to deliver Right? The Lord is the one that's going to deliver him. The Lord's going to give the sentence. The Lord's going to plead his cause. The Lord's going to deliver me from your hand. He's trusting that God will plead his case and deliver him from his enemy. Now, now don't miss this. David's confidence in his deliverance is rooted in his innocence. His confidence in his deliverance is rooted in his innocence. David knew he wasn't in the wrong and our confidence in deliverance is also tied to our innocence. Now, maybe you're like, uh, that's horrible news because I'm not innocent. Which, by the way, none of us are innocent in and of ourselves. See, our deliverance comes through us being innocent, but not of our own right, but through the sacrifice of Jesus in our place. That's what makes us innocent. That's what brings confidence. So when John tells us in 1 John 2, he, Jesus, is the propitiation of our sin, right? He's the one that bears the wrath for our sin, right? That, that, that's what makes us innocent. That's what gives us confidence. Galatians 3, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. That's what makes us innocent. That's what gives us confidence. The point being that our deliverance comes through God's sacrifice, making us innocent. And loved ones, this is part of the blessing of patiently trusting God. And where David patiently trusted, Saul's response here in verses 16 through 22 is really a sharp, stark contrast to that. There's a lot of things we could say about it. Let me just try to sum it up this way, that this is a warning of empty confession. This is empty confession that comes from Saul. And when God confronts, when God exposes sin in us, it's a merciful and gracious gift that he gives to us so that we can be reconciled and we can be restored to him. But it has to be embraced. It can't be begrudged. It can't be pushed aside. It can't be avoided or ignored. It has to be embraced. Otherwise, it is lost and wasted. And so look at your Bibles, verse 16 through 22. Here's Saul's response. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And 
And you have declared this day how you've dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. They might be saying, wait, wait, Mike, on the surface, that, that, that seemed pretty good. Like, I, 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 why would you say it's empty? Well, for a few reasons. One is when you read the rest of the story, Saul doesn't stop or halt his pursuit of trying to kill David. So it's empty in, in that nothing else here in this moment, this was just a momentary thing, if not a bold-faced lie. But really, what, what, what Saul's response is demonstrating for us is the distinction that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7, the distinction between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Right? A godly sorrow leads to repentance. A worldly sorrow produces death. And there's a massive difference, a massive difference between feeling sorry about sin and repenting of sin. Right? So with sorrow, there might be tears, there might be sadness, there might be shame, but with repentance... There's all of those things, as well as a hatred for sin and a change of conduct. See, repentance seeks to be restored to God, where worldly sorrow seeks a therapeutic response to make me feel better. Now, they might look the same on the surface. They're wildly different uh, when you press into them. And Saul is not repentant. And his conduct over the rest of the book will bear this out. This is an empty confession. And it is warning us to not be empty confessors. Let me make three quick points here. First of all, this. Notice in verse 17 that empty confession still appeals to self-righteousness. He says to David, you are more righteous than I. Now, you could read that and be like, he understands David's more righteous. Or you could read that and be like, why would you assume there's any righteousness in you at all? You've been an absolute disaster, start to finish. See, because in our sin, there is no righteousness in us. It's Christ and His righteousness. That's what we're clothed in, and that's what allows us to appeal to any righteousness at all. And so empty confession wants to hold to some semblance of self-righteousness, True confession is only going to hold to the righteousness of Christ. Are you trying to hold to some facade of righteousness in you, or are you trusting Jesus' righteousness for you? Secondly, look at verse 20, that empty confession brings an acknowledgement without action. Right, so he says to David, yep, you're going to be king. Your kingdom's going to be established. But he doesn't change his actions. Right, so so, so he, he acknowledged the sin, but he didn't do anything to change any of it. He, he just kept pressing on. And loved ones, that is one of the clearest signs of an absence of true repentance. There, there's no demonstrable change. Let me just speak pastorally here for a moment. Uh, because, man, I see this stuff all the time. Sin is confessed, sin is exposed, sin gets revealed. And, and let's be honest, it's painful to come to grips with the sin in our lives. It is. 
But the pursuit in that moment of repentance is to be restored to God, to be restored to the person that I offended, and to, 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 to abhor the sin within me, and to, to rev- just have such a revulsion. I want nothing to do that. I'm going to turn my back on it. And yet far too often, here's what happens. It's not actual repentance. It's some kind of therapeutic measure. I feel bad about my sin, and I don't want to feel bad anymore. Not that I actually want to stop sinning. Not that I actually want to honor the Lord. Not that I actually want to do the righteous thing. I just don't want to feel bad about it. See, that's an empty confession that will acknowledge things, but there's no action tied to it. And so be very, very careful that you don't pursue therapeutic measures, but ignore legitimate repentance. And then finally this, look at verse 21. That empty confession is directed to others, not to the Lord. Now he says, swear to me therefore by the Lord, but he's not really talking to the Lord, and he's not interested in getting right with the Lord. Who's he interested in getting right with? Just David. He ignores the fact that he sinned repeatedly against God. Now contrast that to David in Psalm 51 when he says, against you and you only have I sinned. And it's not that David hasn't wronged other people. He just knows, listen, it's far more grievous before the Lord than it is before one another. And yet for us, the same question, how often is my confession more for others and to get right with them than it is to be uh, ensuring that I'm right with the Lord? God help us, God help us that we would not be empty confessors, but that the exposure of our sin would lead us to a true repentance. So as we think about David, we think about him patiently trusting God's plan. I want to close by having us consider how Jesus does this very same thing and gives us a gospel insight into this. Let me invite you, turn with me to Matthew 4 real quick. Just real quick, Matthew chapter 4, often referred to as the temptation of Christ here. Uh, And these three temptations that Satan brings, that Satan offers before Jesus. Matthew 4 verse 3 says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Remember, he'd been fasting for 40 days. Probably eating a rock looked appealing, much less turning it into bread. And Jesus responds, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil takes him up and he shows him all these things, right to the, t- the pinnacle of the temple. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written. He'll command his angels concerning you and on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus again says, hey, it's written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. And then thirdly, uh, in verse 9, he said to him, all these things, right, there's all these kingdoms I'll give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him, or you shall, and him only shall you serve. And you read these, and, and you're like, Okay, wh- why would Satan offer those? Like, they already belong to Jesus, they're his. Like, wh- why would he offer those things? Because in those instances, Jesus can have the throne without having to endure the suffering of the cross. See, it's the same thing that's going on with David in the cave. Hey, you, you can just bypass the hard stuff. I mean, just go right to the good stuff. And what, what Satan was offering, God had already promised, just not in the way that God had ordained it. Loved ones, this is why the process matters. Had Jesus been like, yep, I'll just, that's great, I'll go right to the throne, there's no salvation that exists for you and I. Rick Phillips says this, he says, only by doing God's work in God's way would Jesus truly receive God's reward for himself and his people. And loved ones, in some forms, the very same thing is true for us. And the temptation, the temptation for us 
is that we would seek a salvation, that we would seek a sanctification, or that we would seek a situation that lets us circumvent the various struggles that God has for us in order to develop us. And so choose to patiently trust God's plan while happening God's time and by God's way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word brings remarkable clarity in our lives. God, that it just cuts through noise and static and everything else. And God, I, I won't even pretend to know all the different things that are going on in people's lives and all the different ways that they're wrestling and struggling and, and, and uh, considering uh, what's, uh, what, what to do and how to respond and what that looks like. But God, I'm thankful that you know. God, I'm thankful that you're leading each and every one of us that you are helping us to patiently trust you, to trust your plan, to trust your timing, to trust your way. And God, I pray for the specific items, the, the things that, that, that are in hearts, in the core of hearts and souls right now, the things that we're wrestling on, the things that we're struggling with, that we both individually and collectively as a church would be able to say to you, we're going to patiently trust the Lord. We're going to patiently wait on him. We're going to patiently give ourselves over to him, knowing that in the end, he's going to do what is good and right and best. So God, would you help us? God, would you help us to trust you? We pray this in your name.